Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Welcome back to Strictly VC Download. It has been a minute. Alex and I were on a vacation with our children slash interns. Okay, really, they're not great interns. I'm just going to be candid with you. (laughs) Maybe when they get older. But we had a great trip. We covered a lot of territory. We were mostly on the East Coast, New York, Washington, Charleston. I'd never been to Charleston. Really lovely. Savannah, like that even more. And uh, Wilmington, North Carolina. I guess you don't need my whole itinerary. But anyway, great, great trip. I do have a little bit of, let's call it re-entry syndrome. So that means that I've been totally (laughs) disorganized this week as we've been unpacking. And I did line up somebody really great who I hope to connect with, again, an early investor in Axios, the digital media company that you probably saw this week was sold to Cox Enterprises. I'm really very happy for everyone there. It was a little bit confusing. It was reported that It sold for $525 million, but I think really the company is valued at $525 million, and I don't think the actual dollar amount was shared. But Cox bought 70% of the company, which generates something like $100 million in revenue, which means that it's valued at more than 5x its revenue, which is really terrific. In any case, I guess what I'm trying to say is we don't have a guest for you this week, but we have a handful of news stories that I hope you will enjoy. Alas, none of them center on Axios, which would have made sense. But hey, you can read about it all over the place, including in Axios itself. And now before we get started, a word from our sponsor. Saster Annual 2022 is almost here. 10,000 SaaS founders, execs, revenue leaders, and investors will be taking over the Bay Area from September 13th to the 15th. This is your last chance to book your ticket. Strictly VC podcast listeners can use code STRICTLYVC to save 20% off tickets before they sell out. Enter S-T-R-I-C-T-L-Y-V-C at checkout on sasterannual.com. See you in September. Nikhil Patel is the kind of founder who investors love. He's a brainiac who, before studying computer science at Yale, spent three years in high school working as a research associate at the University of Central Florida. He told me this week, I started working there before I could drive, and it was the most embarrassing thing to get dropped off by my mom at the office. Patel also has a personal connection to the problem that he's trying to solve, that of trying to diagnose and address Alzheimer's disease as early as possible. Watching his grandmother lose ground to Alzheimer's and understanding from a young age that an early diagnosis and intervention can delay the onset of dementia, he centered his research on building Alzheimer's-related computerized diagnostics, which was not easy to pull off as a teenager. In fact, he says he finally found one professor who was willing to publish his findings under the auspices of the lab after more than 100 others turned him down. Patel did get a wee bit distracted on his journey. 
After graduating from college, he logged time at a couple of different hedge funds and at Goldman Sachs, where he worked on trading algorithms. But by early last year, as another relative was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, he returned to his earlier work, co-founding Craniometrics, which is today a three-person operation with sizable ambitions. So far, the team has raised $6 million in seed funding for a HIPAA-compliant app that, according to Patel at least, can help identify Alzheimer's disease after just 10 minutes of gameplay on a cell phone. It's not purely a tech offering. Patel says the results are given to a, quote, actual physician affiliated with craniometrics who, quote, reviews, verifies, and signs that diagnostic and returns it to a patient. But the company's backers, including Quiet Capital and Defy VC, are really betting on Patel and his bigger vision to create a one-stop, direct-to-consumer telemedicine platform that not only helps with early Alzheimer's detection, but that also provides ongoing support to patients and their caregivers. It's a concept that venture capitalist Neil Sequeira of Defy says he's rallied around easily given his firm's interest in startups that use tech to improve upon legacy healthcare businesses. But Sequeira suggests that he might back anything Patel worked on. In fact, he says he met Patel through another CEO whose stealth startup Defy has funded and who, when asked about the smartest person he ever met, pointed to Patel. Only time will tell if those smarts translate into a big business, but unsurprisingly, Patel already has a roadmap. While step one centers on people who are concerned about developing Alzheimer's, want to self-screen at home, and will receive a doctor-reviewed diagnostic report from the company within 48 hours, Craniometrics expects to soon offer real-time doctor access for customers who may have questions and concerns after receiving that report. Craniometrics also plans to create bundled monthly subscriptions that offer point-in-time screenings, access to live doctor assistance, and other tools to address symptom management and caregiver support. It's a big market, Patel argues. He asserts that caregivers today spend $3,000 a year out of pocket on the types of services that Craniometrics will eventually offer online. He also notes that while the direct-to-consumer market alone is a big opportunity, he's already having, quote, interesting conversations with health plans about using tools like those that Craniometrics is developing to cut down on unnecessary patient visits. Says Patel, a lot of today's visits could easily be served by a chat service or an offline communication service. Ultimately, he says, the idea is to eliminate the need to go to a medical office, but it's also to keep people on better footing when it comes to managing the disease. Considering that Alzheimer's currently afflicts 6 million Americans and that those numbers are growing fast as the overall population ages, this company could be one to watch. Stay tuned. According to an article in yesterday's Guardian, Facebook and Instagram are using methods often employed by hackers to monitor users who view websites in in-app browsers. Here's how it works. Let's say a user sees a link on Facebook and clicks on it. Facebook renders the site in an in-app browser, but it also injects JavaScript code that allows it to monitor every button the user clicks on the site, as well as any information the user enters into a form, such as one's username, password, address, or credit card number. Felix Krauss, a privacy researcher, discovered the tactic. He says the approach used by the Instagram and Facebook in-app browsers works for any website, no matter whether it's encrypted or not. Facebook and Instagram parent company Meta maintains that what it is doing does not violate Apple's app tracking transparency standard, which allows users to opt in or opt out of app tracking when they first open an app. Meta has previously said that app tracking transparency has cost the company over $10 billion. 
In Meta's view, injecting JavaScript code in users' in-app browsers is legit because the company is not using it to follow users across different sites. Rather, it is using the technique to aggregate user data before using it for targeted advertising or measurement purposes. We do not add any pixels, a Meta spokesperson continued. Code is injected so that we can aggregate conversion events from pixels. While Meta may not think what it is doing is suspect, it definitely seems creepy. JavaScript injection is frequently classified by security researchers as a type of malicious attack. Also, one wonders whether this kind of approach will pass muster with the EU's General Data Protection Regulation, aka GDPR. For a company that seems to be pushing it to the limit, this news just seemed to be further confirmation that Meta is still living by its motto to move fast and break things. Spend any amount of time in New York and you'll feel it. Manhattan and Brooklyn are teeming with activity. It's electrifying to be there after years spent in relative lockdown. The question, and one asked this week by the San Francisco Chronicle, is why San Francisco isn't bouncing back in the same way. As reporter Roland Lee writes, there's always been a disparity. New York has 10 times the population of San Francisco, but the coastal tourism and economic hubs have diverged in striking ways as they recover from the pandemic. Consider, writes Lee, that while the construction of major commercial property projects in Manhattan were completed during the pandemic, and while much of that new space is almost fully leased, over in San Francisco, projects have stalled and a lot of existing buildings are struggling to find tenants. One possible way to fill those buildings is to convert them into housing. Wall Street, Lee observes, has been doing exactly that for decades. But while in New York there is clear demand for housing, with rents rising to record prices even now, in San Francisco it's not as plain that enough people would, at this very moment in time, rent converted office space, even if it were made available. According to a story today in The Real Deal, new data published by the commercial real estate company Yardi states that San Francisco is right now the least competitive housing market in all of California, with only seven would-be tenants per vacant apartment, compared with double that number in neighboring Silicon Valley and the East Bay. It's not all doom and gloom for San Francisco. Yardi's research notes that the city's occupancy rate rose to 93% in the second quarter, compared with 89% a year earlier. Also, apartments rented eight days faster, at an average of 41 days. Still, work-from-home policies are clearly having a major impact on where people live, and many Bay Area employees who could flee the region's high prices have. California, led by San Francisco, lost more than 352,000 residents between April of 2020 and January of this year, according to the California Department of Finance Statistics. Indeed, in his piece, Lee partly draws a line between the, quote, jarring crowds on New York's city streets to April of last year, when then-Mayor Bill de Blasio announced that city workers would soon be going to the office, a move quickly followed by private companies. Called back by employers, New Yorkers who'd left during the pandemic suddenly found themselves looking anew for housing, if even to spend just two or three days in the office. That gambit continues to work, seemingly. The Partnership for New York City, which says it surveyed more than 160 employers between a two-week period in late April and early May, found that 38% of their Manhattan workers are now back in the office on the average weekday, while 28% are fully remote. Meanwhile, average attendance is expected to rise to 49% next month. 
That doesn't mean employees are back full-time. They may never be, given that even the loudest critics of remote work have been forced to soften their stance, including J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon. As Bloomberg reported in May, Dimon told shareholders in an April letter that working from home will, quote, become more permanent in American business. And he estimated that about 40% of J.P. Morgan's workforce would work under a hybrid model. Soon after, a senior tech executive from the bank told some teams they could spend two and not three days back in the office if they wanted, based on internal feedback. Those two to three days a week could be saving New York, and it may be time for more San Francisco employers who've been reluctant to make demands of their own employees to consider doing the same. Small businesses in San Francisco are increasingly desperate for the economic activity that office employees would bring back. And if civic duty is not top of mind for local tech companies, there continues to be a strong argument that hybrid settings allow employees to enjoy a better work-life balance, more camaraderie with their colleagues, and also to get ahead in their careers. We get it. Many blame San Francisco's inability to bounce back on its lack of affordable housing, and there is no question the city is self-sabotaging on this front. But forever abandoning return-to-office plans won't solve the problem. Meanwhile, two and a half years after the pandemic sent everyone home, and amid a slowing U.S. economy that makes it harder to switch jobs, it might be time for more outfits to call back employees into the office two to three times a week and see what happens from there. It's not employers' responsibility to, quote, fix San Francisco. At the same time, there might not be much left to come back to if they wait too long. In today's New York Times, reporter Aaron Griffith writes about a battle that is taking place in one of Silicon Valley's most exclusive communities. Atherton, California, which borders on Stanford University, has been America's most expensive zip code for the last five years. The median sales price for a home is $7,475,000, nearly $2 million ahead of the runner-up. Prices are so high that the idea of affordable housing in Atherton seems like an oxymoron. Nevertheless, the state of California is requiring Atherton to build 348 affordable housing units. That has a who's who of the tech world up in arms. Relying on their frequent use of all caps, venture capitalist Mark Andreessen wrote the town that its plans to construct nine townhouse developments would, quote, massively decrease our home values, the quality of life of ourselves and our neighbors, and immensely increase the noise, pollution, and traffic. Andreessen and his wife own four properties on Atherton's Tuscaloosa Avenue. Another VC, Aidan Senkut of Felicis Ventures, said the potential for increased traffic had made him concerned about the safety of his children. And four other investors, Gary Swart of Polaris Partners, Norm Fogelsong of IVP, Greg Stanger of Iconic, and Tim Draper of Draper Associates, also submitted letters protesting the town's proposal. The outcry from town residents has been so vociferous that the Atherton City Council has withdrawn its plan to build housing developments and is instead asking town homeowners to rent out accessory dwelling units or subdivide their properties. It is also talking about potentially building housing for teachers on school property. Will any of these ideas ensure that Atherton reaches the state's goal of building 348 affordable housing units? Almost assuredly, no. And that's a problem, as the state could either levy fines against Atherton's residents or take over the planning process itself. In 2020, Andreessen published an essay on his website entitled, It's Time to Build, about the need for cities like San Francisco to build affordable housing. But it seems to be another thing when it comes to one's own town. 
As Jeremy Levine, a policy manager at the Housing Leadership Council of San Mateo County, told The Times, Atherton talks about multifamily housing as if it was a Martian invasion or something. That's it. Thanks for listening, everybody. Special thanks again to Saster. Don't forget to check out sasterannual.com and enter code STRICTLYVC for a 20% discount. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you here next week.